And again, we welcome you on Dave Mitchell, and it's great to be able to share together from God's Word. And as we begin this series, we're talking about giving up on hopelessness. One of the best ways to give up on hopelessness is to go to Ancestry.com. And uh, many of you have done a little bit of a genealogy of your life. We're going to do a genealogy of the life of Jesus. If Jesus had gone to Ancestry.com, I want to show you what he would have discovered about his ancestors. But before we get to Jesus, let's go to someone who's almost as good as Jesus. That would be John Sherman. <laughs> John has been one of the maybe the longest serving pastor here at Calvary Church, and he is very much into genealogy. And here's his uh, part of his family tree that you can see on here. And uh, I know it's a little bit hard to make it out, but it's intriguing to me that even this little dog, Daisy Sherman, somehow fits. I'm not sure. I don't want to go there. But that's something that is intriguing to me. But let me just show you what amazes us when you do a little background on those that have preceded us that are part of our family. John is amazingly connected to just about everybody in the world. Let me show you. For example, he did a study and he is related to George Washington. George Washington, the first president of the U.S., is your ninth cousin. John Sherman, can you believe it? Also, we find out that he is related to Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan is your, or your 15th cousin once removed. <laughs> he is also related to Muhammad Ali. <laughs> yes, he may not look like it, but he is. Muhammad Ali is your 14th cousin four times removed. Can you believe it? And then also, not to be outdone, he is related to Wilt Chamberlain. That's why John is so tall. Wilt Chamberlain is your seventh great aunt's eighth great nephew, wife's nephew, wife's brother. He's also related to uh, Billy Graham. He's related to J. Vernon McGee, who is an old friend of ours. And then last of all, amongst others, he's actually related to 20 of our presidents. But he's also related to King Tut. Here's King Tut, Pharaoh of Egypt, is John Sherman's 29th great-grandmother's husband's grandfather's wife's brother's wife's sixth great-grandfather's wife's 15th great-grandmother's husband's mother's husband's uncle's wife's daughter's husband's wife's father's wife's uncle wife's third great-grandfather's wife's six cousin's husband's son. So, clearly... He was very close to King Tut, <laughs> obviously very close friends. Well, enough of his genealogy. I'd like for us to talk about Jesus' genealogy. And as surprising as some of these people were as part of John's family tree, I am surprised as to those that are in Jesus' family tree. You might want to have Matthew chapter 1 open to you you and your scriptures, the very first gospel of the New Testament. Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Joseph, who is the father of Jesus in that miraculous virgin birth kind of way. And in this genealogy, we find all these various people. And sometimes we just want to gloss over all these names because a lot of them we can't pronounce. We don't know who they are. They make no sense to us. And we think, let's just get to the real stuff. I want to show you that as Paul said, all scripture is inspired by God as profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we might be adequately equipped for every good work. 
the genealogies are part of that equipping us for every good work. So I want us to show how that works. I love this passage that Paul talks about here. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal life, eternal comfort, I should say, and good hope by grace. Hope comes through grace. Giving up hopelessness is facilitated by the grace of God. So give good hope by grace and comfort so that strengthening your hearts in every good work and word. When we come to the holidays, there's a lot of things that go through our hearts and minds, and sometimes there are circumstances that you and I have gone through, and they weigh us down, and they take away the hope. And what Paul is telling us is that good hope brings about good grace that strengthens our hearts. My prayer is that as we look at seven of the ancestors of Jesus, he will once again renew and bring strength to our hearts. Let's begin with the first on the list, and that would be Abraham. I have a picture of Abraham here. We were able to hack into his Instagram account and captured this from him. And here is a selfie that he took as he was climbing up the mountain. And so we're fortunate to have a visual image of what he looks like. Abraham has a wife named Sarah. For the first time in scripture, we hear about the problem of infertility. Abraham and Sarah could not have children, yet God had promised them to have a child, a children that would be as the sand of the seashore. So many there would be of his uh, family tree. But they couldn't have children, and so he was tested in this period of infertility, and they did something very unfortunate in that Sarah gave his, her handmaid Hagar, and through Hagar came Ishmael, and came the Arab nation as we know it today. He failed that test, but in the course of time, when they were both beyond childbearing years, as you may know, they had a son. He had been promised to him. His name was Isaac. So God came to Abraham as Isaac was maybe in his teens, and said, so God says, I'm going to test you. And this is what we read in Genesis chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham, and he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, obviously, your only son, not Ishmael, your son Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So he climbs that mountain with his son Isaac to go up and sacrifice Isaac on the top of that mountain. Now if you're a father who has just finally been able to have a child after years of infertility, the last thing you want to think about is losing that child to death. So Abraham climbs up that mountain. He has all the goods to sacrifice that son on that mountain. And Isaac says, man, we're, we're, what are we doing here? And he says, God will provide. In Abraham's mind, he was going to take Isaac's life. He literally was going to kill him. Because we're told in the book of Hebrews in 11, chapter 11, that Abraham believed that God would resurrect Isaac from the dead after having killed him. That's how big... Abraham's faith had become. So God tested him on that journey. The application for you and for me is that God still tests us. This last week, one of the things I love to do is to read letters from our missionaries. Just this last week, I'm reading a letter from uh, Roy and Lisa Yabuki, who serve with international students in Texas. And Roy said that they had a very tough week. So I was intrigued by that and dropped down in the letter, and there he tells us the story of this couple, this family. 
And they are Evan and Sarah and Rowan Hafferty. They also serve with international students in the Texas area. They love Jesus. They walk with Jesus. They serve Jesus. They're committed to Jesus Christ. Sadly, a week and a half ago on Thanksgiving week, they woke up one morning, went into Rowan's bedroom, this little two-year-old, and he had died in his sleep. I can't imagine anything worse than that. It was a tragic event. They have a memorial service this last week to remember his life, a celebration of his life. And here are these folks that have dedicated their lives to Jesus Christ, and he brings to them the greatest test ever. I was intrigued what Sarah wrote on Facebook. On November the 20th, she wrote this just a week and a half ago. My heart is heavy tonight as Evan and I say goodbye to our son, Rowan. Rowan passed away in his sleep this morning and went to be with Jesus. There are many unanswered questions that we have and do not know the cause of his death, but as I sit here, I'm reminded of Rowan, our amazing sweet boy that was so full of joy. He was always looking to fix, repair, or clean things in and around the house. Rowan was great at capturing our attention with sweet smiles, silly giggles, and a compassionate heart. He warned others of possible danger and led others into adventure. My son, I will never forget the impact you made on my life and the life of everyone you met. There are no words to express the sorrow that we feel in the depths of our soul. But as we grieve, we are reminded of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5:4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We find our comfort in knowing that Jesus has already conquered the grave, and we will one day be reunited with him. I love you so much, Rowan. Sarah and Evan have overcome to a degree this test by believing what Abraham believed, that many of us believe, that God brings new life to those who have died and that we will reunite with them someday in heaven. It doesn't take away the grief, but it certainly replaces some of that grief with hope because as we wait upon the Lord and his return, we have opportunity to see his grace take us to heaven with him. Now, not all of us in this room have lost a child. I know that some of you have. Some of you have had, through, had to undergo some very terrific, harsh, hard losses of children. And I just, for the life of me, can't imagine that. But let me just say this. Don't measure what your test is by whether it's bigger or smaller than this family. In other words, I haven't lost a child, so I shouldn't feel so bad about the test I'm going through right now. Don't measure, don't measure the struggle of your test by whether it's greater or smaller than others who have been tested by God as well. The measure of your test is how it impacts you or me. To the degree that I feel it, to the degree that I grieve over it, to the degree that I am frustrated by it, to the degree that it makes me angry that I have to go through this. Because God allows tests to reveal something that otherwise I would never discover. 
know that chicken of infertility with Abraham and Sarah. Joy and I have gone through infertility. We're not trying to have children anymore. <laughs> but in the early years when we were first married, we went through infertility. And those were hard times as we lost a couple of babies in the course of, of those early years. And they were hard. What's even harder than that is when your children go through it. This last year, our youngest daughter, our baby, Kirsty, lost two babies in the course of wanting to have children. And I don't know whether we, the way you look at it, but I think that we have grandchildren in heaven these days because we believe that every life is precious from the point of conception. If it's hard for us to go through infertility, exponentially it's harder to watch your children go through it. And these are tests that we all go through at times. A variety of tests, be it financial, be it health. These are difficult things. And what God is showing us through Abraham is that even one of my righteous servants, Abraham, who is in the genealogy of Jesus, I blessed him because of his continued faith and trust in me. And God's grace overcame that loss. Let's move on. Here's another name in that list of genealogy. Her name is Tamar. Tamar's story is found in Genesis chapter 38. And it's hard for me to believe that God actually included this story or this person in his genealogy. Tamar is a woman that was given to a son of Judah, one of the 12 sons of the tribes of the nation of Israel. Judah gave his first son, Ur, to her, and Ur sinned and died. So she lost her husband. According to the law, the next brother should become the husband and the father of children. So he gave his second son to her, and he treated Tamar as a sex object and abused her in a sexual way. It's ugly. It's in the scriptures. There was a third son that should have been given to her but was not. Somehow Judah didn't want to risk another son who would die because the other two had died because of their sins. And so she continued life and realized she, out of desperation as a widow, impoverished, needed to do something. She dressed herself like a temple prostitute, sat on the side of the road. One day Judah is walking by, her father-in-law walking by. He looks at her, she's veiled, so he doesn't know it's Tamar, and, she has, and he has sex with her. They have sex. And out of that sexual activity, she becomes pregnant with two twins. Now, for those of us who have battled infertility, those are difficult things to think about, right? And here she becomes pregnant with two twins. Three months down the road, Judah finds out through other people that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been playing around with other men, is now pregnant with somebody else's child. Well, Judah erupts in anger. How dare she do that, not knowing he's the father? And he says, she should be burned to death. So he issues an order for her to be burned to death. That's how women were treated in those days. And then Tamar produces evidence that he had given to her at the time of the sex. He says, you are the father. This is like something out of Jerry Springer. <laughs> Judah, test reports, you are the father. It's incredible. 
And out of that relationship came two twins. One's name was Perez. And Perez is in the line of Jesus. Not to be outdone, but following behind her was a woman by the name of Rahab. She lived in Jericho. The spies came into Jericho because the Israelites wanted to conquer this land to take it as their property. Abraham had been promised this land. And so they come into Jericho. They hide out in a woman's home. And who do they hide out in? They hide out in Rahab the harlot. Rahab is always referred to in the New Testament as Rahab the harlot, as if harlot is her last name. So Rahab the harlot is journeying together with the Israelites. She is rescued out of this territory where they destroy the city of Jericho and she and her family are, are able to escape and then somehow Rahab joins together with the Israelites and lo and behold, Rahab ends up marrying Salmon. Can you imagine the mother of Salmon saying, I, I hear Rahab's doing pretty well. Why not marry a lovely prostitute like Rahab, this Gentile woman? You just, just how do you imagine stuff like that? But that's what happens. Salmon marries Rahab. She becomes this harlot, Rahab the harlot. You look in the New Testament, Rahab the harlot. And she becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus because God says, my grace is greater than harlotry. My grace is greater than sexual promiscuity. My grace is greater than sexual abuse. My grace is greater than infertility and loss of children. My grace covers all those things because I want to give you hope that whatever you're going through, I'm going to overcome it. I will oversee it. I will rule beyond it. And I don't want you to be labored by it. And so Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. And then interesting after that is this woman by the name of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite woman. The Moabites are a people group that was founded because Lot, the brother of Abraham, had incest, committed incest with his two daughters. Again, you just like, boy, Dave, should you be talking about this stuff in church? <laughs> this is incredible. So Lot has incest with his two daughters. One daughter has a son. He is Moab, and he becomes the father of the Moabites. Ruth is part of that ancestry. And so she is living in this area of Moab. Moab is a territory outside of, uh, of uh, Israel. Here is Israel. Moab is the area in the purple. The Moabite people had no relationship that was healthy with Jewish people. They were not allowed to worship with the Jewish people. They were never, in fact, in Deuteronomy it says something that they would never have peace with the Jewish people. The Israelites and the Moabites never got along. They were not part of the same line, even though they went back to some of the same DNA. And so Ruth is this woman that now is in the genealogy of Jesus. And the reason for that is because her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her husband and their two sons went from Israel to Moab because it was an impoverished time. They needed food, so they go there. In the course of going there, Naomi's husband dies and their two sons die after they had married two Moabite women. And the one Moabite woman stayed in Moab when Naomi wanted to go back to Israel, but Ruth went with Naomi, her mother-in-law, back to Israel. And so Ruth goes back there and she's got all kinds of strikes against her. She is a marginalized person. A marginalized person is someone who is powerless and relegated to unimportant positions. She's marginalized. Ruth is marginalized in the sense because, number one, she's a woman. And we've already heard how badly women were treated in those days. They were like property. They were not people. She is a widow. She's lost her husband. She's lost any means of support. 
any way to gain money. And for many of you who are widows, you know how devastating that can be, just the grief of the loss, let alone the way it just disrupts all of your living lifestyle. It can interrupt your, your finances, keep taking care of your home, running the business. All these things become undermined to a certain degree until you can finally find your footing once again to move forward. She was a Moabite woman, and they weren't to get along with Jewish people, and she was impoverished. One of the things that she would do is she came back with Naomi. They had nothing. So what poverty, what poor people would do is they would glean the fields. And so Ruth would pick up the gleaning, the leftovers on the corners of the land. That's the only way she could survive. But God in his grace takes this Moabite widow who is impoverished and offers nothing in her own right except just a woman. And there is a man by the name of Boaz that notices her. And God brings Boaz into a relationship with Ruth because she is gleaning on Boaz's land. And of the story fast forward is that Boaz and Ruth marry. And Boaz and Ruth have children. And notice this in Ruth, Ruth 4. They bless her with this. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. You know, that's not a name that I'd want to be bringing up on Facebook. Look, look at our past. It's just incredible how God does not conceal the faults and the flaws, but exalts them of his grace to overcome them. Immigrants are often considered marginalized people. I want to show you a very short clip of a man that I got to know just by virtue of him being alumnus of my alma mater, Dallas Seminary, when this last week I received a video of his story. Let me play about Jaleel, who is an immigrant from Iraq, whose very family was bombed when our pilots bombed Iraq when Iraq took into Kuwait. He survived those bombs. Jaleel, here is his story. I fled Iraq in 1982 because of the war between Iraq and Iran and the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. And it was a hard situation where we have F-4 flying over our house and jamming our house and shaking our house. My parents saw that it's fit that I would flee to save my lives and eventually to unite the family together. My name is Jalil Abraham Daoud. I'm the pastor of the Arabic Church of Dallas. And I am also the president and founder of World Refugee Care, which is an organization that speaks and cares for refugees locally and internationally. I was born in Iraq, Baghdad, from a Christian traditional family. Uh, I was uh, to be drafted in the Iraqi army and uh, the family saw that as a danger to our family, as a danger to me. And if I am to stay, I would go to this war that is, uh, took a lot of people's lives. And they didn't want me to get killed, injured, or become POW. And also the persecution. There was persecution for the minority, not necessarily from the government, but also from the society as a whole, which we the family didn't see there is hope in this nation because this nation is trending toward wars and persecution of Christians. So I was able to flee Iraq by the grace of God 
because the officer who signed up on my paper did not recognize that um, to be drafted in six months and God blinded his eyes and uh, he gave me permission to travel and I fled. Right now, this is the chance to share the gospel, the opportunity, the window is open for us to share the gospel with refugees and this is the time is right. These days, the issue of immigrants and refugees and people who are different is not a popular subject. Yet God wants us to focus on that. And that's the mission of the church, to reach the least reached and to reach the people who are not hearing the gospel when we want to tell them about the Lord Jesus. Greatest joy in serving Jesus is to see people coming to him get saved. And that's what Dallas Seminary taught us how to share the gospel through the mission class, how to be influential. And those people who did not only uh, preach the word, but lived the word. And we love the day of Pentecost, where we see people from different nationality came and worshiped the Lord in their own language and the believers understood each other. So that's the day where we see the Iraqi, the Mesopotamians, and we see the Egyptian and the Romans and the Greeks and the Libyans, and they all came together because we have one Christ. And that's where we as diverse in nationality and ethnic backgrounds, but yet Christ unify us. And that's the message of the church that we want to give that message of Christ to the people that we meet. Jaleel's story is that he's not a victim. He was saved by going to Rome as somehow God brought him to a missionary in Rome who was a missionary to the Jewish population in Rome. So here he is, an Iraqi, sitting in a classroom with Jewish people, hearing the gospel and giving his life to Jesus Christ. He comes to the United States and has absolutely nothing and then, by the grace of God, overcomes that and now has a ministry to immigrants. He believes in a lawful immigration, but he believes, more importantly, that we should be Christ to the marginalized people amongst us. That he has this biblical perspective that's something bigger than the legalities and the politics, but he sees people as God sees them. God saw Ruth as an immigrant a widowed immigrant who was impoverished and he looked upon her with grace. We are called to do the same, to express the grace of God to those who are the most marginalized amongst us. The rest of the list, very quickly, includes David and Bathsheba. I don't know that we need to go into a lot of detail there as that's a name and a story that is tragic. King David, this righteous king, but then had a moment in life where he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then sort of tried to set up her husband Uriah as becoming the father of now the pregnant Bathsheba and had him essentially murdered. David, King David, the David that will someday be king in the land again in the new kingdom, is this man who's guilty of adultery, flagrant willful sin, and guilty of murder as he took Bathsheba to be his wife and then caused her husband to die in war. And for one year, for one year, 
He never felt guilt. It wasn't like he woke up the next morning and says, what have I done? For a year he lived with us as Bathsheba gave birth to a child and not until Nathan came and confronted him. That's tragic. But God says, let me put them in there, David and Bathsheba, the genealogy of Jesus. Because he says, I want every person who's ever done something that they think is unforgivable, even to the degree of adultery and murder, that my grace is available for you. We also see this relationship of King Hezekiah, Manasseh. Hezekiah was a righteous king. He had his moments where he began a little bit proud, but God humbled him again. And King Messiah, uh, Hezekiah, ruled well. He had a son, Manasseh, who ruled with him for a period of time. And then Hezekiah died and Manasseh became king, and he became one of the wickedest kings in all of history. I put on the outline that's available for you a verse that I wanted to read. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the kings of Assyria against them. And they captured King Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God, humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Manasseh is created with by God with distress so that Manasseh repents. And it's grace for those of us who... Or of you who may have children who are not walking with God. You reared them that way, but they have gone away from the faith. I want to let you know there's grace even for you and for your children that God saw Hezekiah and this estranged relationship with his son Manasseh and brought Manasseh back to repentance. And Manasseh began to remove the idols of the land. This is an amazing story of God giving hope to parents who want their children back with Jesus. That's why God gives us stories like this. And the last one is Josiah. King Josiah was the best king ever. And so he didn't have these flaws and faults and sins that had to be forgiven. At eight years old, he became king. And then at some point in his uh, rulership, the scrolls of the scriptures were discovered. They brought them in and read them, and he realized they had not been followed. No one had obeyed. And so he ripped his shirt, it says, and he cried out before God. And God saw him and blessed him as he was a righteous king. And here is what you would love to see written on all of our tombstones. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, and did, nor did any like him arise after him. He was a unique man. His father was as evil as King Manasseh. He grew up in an evil society. He grew up in a society filled with temptations and ways to fail in his spiritual journey. But God blessed him because he went to scriptures and remained faithful to the end. You feel like there's so many things surrounding you, circumstances, whatever it may be. You may be like Abraham being tested in some way. You may experience some of the Tamar effect of sexual abuse. You may be similar to Rahab where there's a brokenness of your past that you, still, you just don't think you can get beyond it and God's grace can't be sufficient for you. You may be like Ruth, where you feel like you're marginalized. You've become widowed. You've become impoverished. There's something holding you back. Or David and Bathsheba, you have committed these sins that seem like they're 
unpardonable, they're unforgivable, that God's grace could never be enough for you. You may be like Hezekiah and Manasseh where you have these children that you wish they would come back to the Lord and you give them to God and you pray that God would you do for my children what you did for Manasseh, for Hezekiah, his father. Or perhaps like Josiah, you think there's just no hope that I could ever live a righteous life where God's word has power to help me through this life. Whatever your situation may be, I want you to know that God's grace is able to cover you. I'm going to invite Pastor Eric to come up here and give me a hand because I want you to have a sense of a visual covering for your situation, whatever it may be, that God's grace can cover you. And for all these people that God raised up in the genealogy of Jesus, he literally covered them with grace so that they could have hope in this world in which we journey. I pray that for each of you, for me, that whatever the test, whatever the failure, whatever the calling, that God's grace is covering us as well. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that we would know your grace because in your grace we have hope and that, Lord, whatever hopelessness we feel this holiday season may be driven away by the hope that you give to us, knowing that the stories of the life of Christ were stories that you overcame to allow your son to be born, to live, to die, to be buried, and to rise again. Lord, each of these stories bring us to Jesus, that it's in Christ that we're united under your grace, your banner of grace, that your grace would fulfill us and guide us, heal us, and strengthen us, that we would have hope in a hopeless world. Father, thank you for the grace that you offer today. Through your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins to give us new life, to live and walk with you. Father, we bring this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the ways that Christ wants to remind us of the hope we can have in him is through communion. We're going to receive communion this morning, the bread and the cup. The bread is the body of Jesus. The little baby Jesus born to the Virgin Mary, that little human being grew up to die on a cross, and because he was flesh and blood, he was able to take our place on that cross so that his blood could become the, the means by which his grace covers our sin and removes it from us forever, even to the point of adultery and murder, as King David reveals. His grace is more than enough. So we're going to receive these elements. I invite you to take the bread and the cup, hold it, I'll come back up, and we'll take this bread and cup together.